Well, I want you to know I've been looking forward to coming here for uh, a long time since Bob called and asked me to come, or texted and asked me to come, and uh, to spend a few days with Bob and Cherry and to be with some other folks that I know. My brother Berlin is here. And I think I see two former classmates here. I know one's here, Steve Wilshire. I think that's John McPherson sitting out there. Um, it's about a week or so ago when we were 18, we started school together. And they have been dear friends ever since. Uh, John's a little bit older than Steve and I. I think he was held back a few grades, and that's how we ended up in the same class. No, that's not true, but it's good to see them. And uh, to be with you this week to talk about the reason for our hope. Now, Peter says we're to be ready to give an answer for the reason for our hope. And I can tell you right quick what my answer is when people ask about my hope, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be talking primarily about the resurrection of Christ this week. Tonight, though, I want to talk about the beliefs of unbelievers, which is something that unbelievers typically don't like to talk about because there is no subject that will expose the absurdity and the emptiness and the vacuity of unbelief any quicker than talking about what they believe. They like to talk about our beliefs and they like to attack our beliefs. They like to make us think that Christianity is the non-thinking man sugar stick. And in many places, if you want to commit intellectual suicide, just let it get out that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. But uh, it is they who ought to be ashamed for the beliefs they hold. You see, to say that somebody is an unbeliever doesn't mean they don't have any beliefs. They've got more beliefs than I ever hoped to have. But there's no basis for their belief. And I'm going to try to speak to that, that issue this evening. And I want to cut to the chase. I, I, I mean, that is Christ-like. To cut to the chase, John 2 verse 25 says that Jesus didn't have to be filled in about anybody. He knew what was in everybody. And with every individual Christ encountered, he went to the core problem they were dealing with. And when you understand that, a lot of what he says to people uh, falls into line when he tells a rich young ruler, for instance, to uh, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. If you understand what the rich young ruler's problem is, what Christ says makes sense. But, but when Christ said to Nicodemus, Nicodemus comes and, and offers some flattery about Christ. No man could do what you do unless God's with him. Christ says, except a man be born again, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what that legalistic Pharisee needed to hear about being born. We don't have any control over our birth. It is purely a gift. It's purely an act of grace. And Christ spoke to what that man needed to hear. When he tells a woman in chapter 4 of John, go get your husband. He was putting his finger on her greatest problem at that time. When he said to a man he had just healed on the Sabbath, take up your bed and walk, he was speaking to those scribes and Pharisees standing around, telling them what they needed to hear, challenging their assumptions. And so Christ didn't beat around the bush, and I don't want to beat around the bush tonight talking about what unbelievers believe. But I want to introduce the study by asking you to go to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, Hebrews 11 illustrates the great 
principle from Habakkuk 2 verse 4 that the just shall live by faith. The New Testament takes three books to talk about that statement, the just shall live by faith. Romans talks about what it means to be just and uh, Galatians talks about what faith means and Hebrews talks about what it means to live by faith. And so in chapter 10, verse 38 of Hebrews, we have that statement from Habakkuk 2.4. And uh, then there follows an entire chapter illustrating what it means to live by faith. The by faith formula introduces us to one individual after another. And in verse 1, we have a key statement about faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I like the way Moffat translates that when he says that faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, what that verse tells me is that there is more to life than what we can see. There is more to reality than simply the physical. And if you can't see what can't be seen, you're not seeing very much. Because the most important things to be seen in life are the things that can't be seen by our physical eyes. Well, how can you see them? You see them by faith. But it's not a leap in the dark kind of faith. It's not a a faith that has no basis as the unbeliever, the atheist might try to make our faith out to be. True faith, Bible kind of faith has a basis for belief. It has a foundation. You might want to write Psalm 37, verse 3, alongside Hebrews 11, where David says, Trust in the Lord and do good. You see, faith demands a worthy object and a workable outcome. David just didn't say trust. He said trust in the Lord. There is no value or virtue in faith per se. It's the object of faith that gives value to anyone's faith. I mean, if you go out to the airport and you're wanting to fly up to Chicago and you walk out on the runway and there's a biplane with half a wing missing and it's held together with bailing twine and there's holes in the rudder and and a guy with goggles standing out by the cockpit and you ask him, uh, can you fly me to Chicago? Oh yeah, get get in, I'll get you there. And I'm starting to get a little worried about, you know, the, the competency of this guy and the machine he's getting ready to put me in. So I ask him, have you ever... Uh, Uh, flown to Chicago before? Oh, no, never. Don't worry. I'll I'll get you there. You know, if I get on that plane with that pilot, that's not faith. That's foolishness because the object of my faith is utterly worthless. Faith must have a worthy object. There must be a basis, a foundation for what we believe. And faith demands a workable outcome. Faith is never in the Bible defined as passive. It's always active. If you've got some terrible disease and you read about a cure being found for it, you know, in Europe, you don't think you're cured just because a cure has been found. You understand that to be cured, you've got to get the medicine and you've got to take it. You've got to do something. And so Bible faith is not intellectually void It has solid reasons 
for believing what we believe. And I'm, I'm going to talk, uh, starting tomorrow night, about those reasons for believing what we believe. But it's by faith that we see what can't be seen. Now, let me say something about the basis for seeing the unseen. How is it that we can see what can't be seen? Well, a logician would say we can see what can't be seen on the basis of inductive reasoning. We can draw conclusions about certain things that can't be seen based on things we can see. That, that's the only way we know anything about electrons. I don't think anybody's ever seen an electron. No one's ever seen gravity. You know, before... Neptune was ever spotted, there was a French mathematician who became convinced that there was an eighth planet out there that nobody had ever seen. And the reason he was convinced of that is because of what he could see in the seventh planet, Uranus, in its orbit around the sun, there were some hiccups in the orbit. There were some glitches. It wasn't a smooth orbit. And this French mathematician... I forget his name, I mispronounced it if I remembered, but he, he figured there must be some other gravitational body out there that no one's spotted yet. That's the explanation for those hiccups. And he put his calculations together, sent them to a friend of his at the Berlin Observatory. On the very day the letter arrived, that night the friend pointed his telescope where the French mathematician said, here's where you need to look. And he saw Neptune. Now, I believe in an eighth planet because it's been seen. But there were people before it was seen who believed in it on the basis of other things they saw. Now, that's how we see the unseeable. Let, let, me, let me give you a text from the Old Testament and a text from the New Testament that illustrate what I'm talking about. Back in 1 Kings chapter 18, we have the battle of the gods. I mean, under the leadership of Ahab and his wife Jezebel, Israel has gone over to Baal, and because of that, God has sent a three-and-a-half-year drought. And finally, God is ready to send Elijah to challenge Ahab and his prophets. And they have this great assembly up on top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah tears into Israel. What's wrong with you people that you can't make up your mind about who is God? You're just kind of limping along, not sure which side you're on. I tell you what, let's have a contest. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And all the people said, that's a great idea. You know why they said that? It's because among other things... Baal was the god of fire. I mean, he's the god of storm. Storm has lightning. Lightning's fire. He's the god of fire. If there's one thing a fire god ought to be able to do, it's light a fire. So the god that answers by fire, let him be God. And the Baal prophets build their altar, you know, and they put the sacrifice on. They start praying. No fire falls. They get out their knives. Listen. It's so dry in Israel after a three-and-a-half-year drought, just one spark from one of those knives is going to send that thing up. God completely stacked the deck in favor of the prophets of Baal. And they're cutting themselves and jumping on the altar. Uh, if sincerity saves, those prophets were saved. 
but no fire falls. And then it's Elijah's turn. He takes 12 stones, builds him an altar, cuts up an animal, puts it on. Then he has 12 buckets of water brought up to drench the altar. Where did the water come from in the drought? It came from the Mediterranean Sea. Mount Carmel is right there on the sea. So they go get seawater. He had dug a trench around it. They douse the altar. They soak the sacrifice. The water fills up the trench. Elijah prays, fire falls, and Israel says... The Lord, Jehovah, he is God. God gave them a visible reason for believing what they believed. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about a foundation for faith. Now go to Mark chapter 2. Let me show you the classic statement in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 2, Christ is teaching uh, in a house, and all of a sudden the plaster from the roof starts falling down around him. And they look up, and there's a hole that's been made above him. A crippled man's been brought by four friends, and they can't get in the room. And so they go up on the roof, and they take up the roof, and they let uh, the, the man down on a pallet into the room. And... Christ does what I I was just talking about. He goes for the jugular. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that's a strange thing. He didn't come to get forgiveness. He came to get healed of being a cripple. But the reason Christ forgave his sins like he did is because Christ knew what those scribes and Pharisees in the room would think. They thought, who does he think he is? Forgiving sins, no one can forgive sins but God only. And Christ knew what they were thinking. Of course he did. He said, now why are you thinking like that? You don't think I have the right to forgive sins. Well, let me ask you, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or arise, take up your bed and walk? He didn't ask which is easier to do. He asked, which is easier to say? You know which is easier? Son, your sins are forgiven. You know why that's easier? How would anybody disprove it? I mean, forgiveness is an invisible thing that takes place in the mind of God. When a person's baptized, they're just wet looking. They don't look any difference in regard to their spiritual standing with God. There's no way you can disprove or prove empirically forgiveness. But if you tell a cripple, oh, I can heal you, now get up and walk, and he doesn't, then you're in trouble. Because your claim has been tested. And if you can't put up or verify it, you need to shut up. And so Christ says... So that you know that I have power on earth to forgive sins, an invisible thing. He said to the crippled man, take up your bed and walk. And the man did. That was a visible thing. And on the basis of what they saw with their eyes, they had a reason for believing that Jesus was the son of God Who could forgive sins? Now, that's how you see the invisible. If you see something in the visible realm that cannot be explained by the visible realm, you've got a basis for believing 
in the invisible. Now look at verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 11. I mean, I love verse 3 because the author starts where everybody's got to start when they talk about the subject we're going to talk about tonight for a few minutes. And that's the subject of cosmology, the origin of the universe. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith... Whatever anybody believes about where all of this came from, they believe it by faith. I mean, everybody, no exceptions. They don't, there aren't some people who believe where the universe came from by science. And others believe it by faith. Everybody believes it by faith. Nobody around today was back then to see how it started. So whatever we believe, we believe by faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews says that we Christians believe two things about the origin of the universe. We believe a person was involved and we understand the process that was involved. By faith, the worlds were framed by the word of God. We believe a person is the explanation for this universe. Furthermore, we believe the process by which he created this world involved making the visible out of the invisible. And everybody believes that. I mean, there is no unbeliever anywhere who doesn't believe that the things that now are must be accounted for by things nobody's ever seen. Okay? So, I mean, the Holy Spirit knew what he was talking about. When he starts here at the beginning in verse 3. Now, before I move on, I want to tell you something. In verse 1, Moffat said, you know, we, we are convicted of things we hope for. We are convinced of things not seen. When you put conviction and convinced together, in my book, you've got certainty. I am certain. It's not probable with me. It's not possible. It is certain that God made this world. I'm as certain that God made this world as I am that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I may be more certain that God made this world than that 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's what faith does for you. Faith enables you to act with certainty. We're sitting under a roof right now that might cave in before we get out of here tonight. I mean, that's a possibility, isn't it? But I don't think anybody here has even thought about the roof till I mentioned it. We're sitting here with the certainty it's not going to. And we'll get out of here just fine. That's what faith does for you. Faith bridges the gap from the evidence we have to where certainty lies. And I'll say more about that tomorrow and, and Sunday. But... But having said all I've said, I want to now lead up to this. I don't know if there's anyone here getting ready to go off to college or any high school students in biology classes and, and whatnot. But if you ever find yourself in a class, in a discussion with an unbeliever, there's only one question to ask. And you get this question down, and you know all the questions you need to ask, and furthermore, you know the corollary to go to after you've asked this question. And the question is, 
have the unbeliever, professor, teacher, friend, makes no difference, have the unbeliever tell you what they believe the eternal existent is. The eternal existent. Everybody believes something has existed forever. Everybody. Because nobody can imagine how something can come from nothing. Listen, if there was ever a moment when there was absolute nothing, there wouldn't be nothing now. There there wouldn't be anything now. Because nothing comes from nothing, right? I mean, if we can't agree on that, that end of discussion. Let's go home, watch TV, do something else if we can't agree that Something does not come from nothing. All we know about anything is that something comes from something. And so you ask the person you're talking with what they believe that eternal something is. Now, I just read you from Hebrews 11:3 what I believe it is. God, by his word, framed the world. That's what I believe. I'll defend that starting tomorrow. Ask the unbeliever what they believe has existed forever. And probably what they will tell you. That they believe the ultimate reality is matter in motion. That's the the eternal existence for the unbeliever. Matter in motion. You know, the atoms in matter and... They believe matter has existed forever. There's only two possible answers, of course. Either the something eternal is supernatural, which I believe, you believe. Or it is natural. And that's what the unbeliever believes. But there's two problems I'll mention tonight. With believing that matter is eternal. The first problem with that view is that we live in a universe comprised of contingent stuff. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, Chicken and the egg. Where, Where do eggs come from? They come from chickens. Where do chickens come from? They come from eggs. You've never seen an egg that has always existed. If you've seen an egg, it's because somewhere there was a chicken. If you've seen a chicken, it's because somewhere there was an egg. Cause, effect, contingent. One depends on the other, and that goes for everything in this universe. Everything we see came from something else. Now, that's not... Me saying that, that's the scientist, the unbelieving scientist saying that. Even the astral phenomena, the stars and the moons and the suns, they'll tell you those all came from pre-existing material. The sun's not been here forever. The stars have not been here. They came from something else. It is not logical to believe that Contingent stuff is non-contingent. It's not logical to believe that 
the material in this universe can explain itself. An egg can't explain itself, and a chicken can't explain itself. It has to point to something before it to explain it. And when that's the situation, it's not logical to say that that chicken or that egg is eternal. I mean, we just know they're not. And so the unbeliever, because he doesn't believe in a supernatural explanation for everything, he believes in a natural explanation, and he will tell you that uh, matter and matter in motion is what's been here forever. And the illogic of that statement usually doesn't bother them at all. But we've got another problem. And this is the second thing I'll say about believing that nature is self-existent, that it's eternal, that it explains itself. The second problem is a thing known as the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I'm not a scientist, and so I, I can't speak scientifically about this, but let me give you an illustration of the second law of thermodynamics. That law looks at the universe from the standpoint of available energy. And the best way maybe to think about it is to think about a gas tank. You got a car with a 20-gallon gas tank that's full of gas, and you start driving. Now, what eventually happens if you don't find a gas station to refill the gas tank? Well, the gas is converted. It's not destroyed or annihilated. That's the first law of thermodynamics. Uh, matter is neither, energy is neither uh, uh, created or, nor destroyed. But the gas is changed into unusable forms of energy. And eventually the gas is all gone and the car comes to a stop. And unless there's somebody to put more energy into the tank that can be utilized by the car, that car is never going anywhere. The second law of Thermodynamics says that in a closed system, which is how the universe conceives of, which is how the atheist conceives of the universe, because he doesn't think there's anything above or beyond the universe to affect it. This universe is all it is, all there is. In a closed system, there is increasing entropy. And what that means is the gas is changed into a different form that the car can't use and the car comes to a stop. This world is winding down. This world is running out of gas. This universe has energy that's being converted to where it can't be used any longer. And if the physicists are right, about the second law of thermodynamics from a physical standpoint, the time will come, not in our lifetime, but the time will come when everything in the universe comes to a dead stop. And life will not, no kind of life will be able to exist. Now, if you can wrap your head around all the, if you can't, that's all right. I mean, go home, Google it, read it. If you want, think about it. But if you can wrap your head around the fact that the gas in this universe's gas tank is running out, think about this. If you've got a 20-gallon gas tank 
and you're going to drive from L.A. to Birmingham, are you going to get here? No, you're going to run out of gas somewhere around uh, the Colorado River there, maybe, between Arizona and California. You might get into Arizona. You're not going to get here on a 20-gallon tank of gas. Now, now listen carefully. If the universe is eternal going backward, if you can even think of the universe that way, if matter is eternal going backward, and eternity is enough time for all of the gas in the universe to run out, which means if the view that matter is the eternal existence, the ultimate reality is true, this universe should have run out of gas a long time ago. Which means either this universe and all the matter in it is not eternal, that it was brought into being some time, at some point in the past, and it still has enough gas in it to keep it going, or... There's somebody putting gas into it from outside. Now, I've got one overhead for this whole weekend. The textbook Fundamentals of Classical Thermodynamics by Van Wylen and Sontag for many years was the standard text in colleges on thermodynamics. They used it at the University of Illinois. I know um, Van Wylen and Sontag were University of Michigan professors. And in their discussion of the second law of thermodynamics, they conclude the chapter by saying the authors see the second law of thermodynamics as man's description of the prior and continuing work of a creator who holds the answer to the future destiny of man and the universe. These men looked at the implications of the second law and say there's got to be a creator. Nature cannot explain nature. What we know about this universe cannot explain this universe. There must be something else. If there's a glitch in the orbit of Uranus, there must be something else out there causing the glitch. Ask what they believe the eternal existent is. And then that leads to the second thing I want to say, and I'll close with this. Once you've discussed the eternal, then you discuss ethics. You can't separate the two. Whatever your view of ethics of morality is, it must be consistent with your view of the eternal. If your view of the eternal is that it's purely physical, you can't get spiritual out of physical. If your view is that all there is is nature... You can't get morality out of nature. David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, was the one who really called attention to this. In philosophy books, it's called the naturalistic philosophy. They say you can't get an ought from an is. You can't get a prescription from a description. If there is no God, there is no ultimate absolute morality. You know, we're in a mess in this country. I mean, we're in a mess. We gloss over things that goes on at the highest levels of our government, the way things are handled, the way people talk about them, what people do is 
20, 25, I mean, growing up, that, that kind of stuff was obscene, X-rated filth that, that nobody who was decent would ever engage in in any kind of public way. And, and it's just commonplace now. Now, we didn't get in this mess overnight. It, it took several centuries for America to get where it is. Let, let me tell you what happened. Back in the 18th century, the Bible was killed. The 18th century is when America was founded, and many of the founding fathers were not Christians in the traditional sense of the term. They were deists. They believed there was a creator. They did not believe he had revealed himself to man. He may have created everything. He wound the clock up, and the clock is now ticking down, but he doesn't intervene, certainly not by giving a special revelation of himself to man. And so men like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson, who wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We don't need special revelation. Just look around you and you can deduce your own morality. They killed the Bible in the 18th century. In the 19th century, they killed God. In the 19th century, when men looked at nature, they didn't see nature's God. They saw the survival of the fittest. They saw a situation in which might made right. And so Nietzsche writes about man being a superman. Man can create his own values and impose them on others. It was Nietzsche who coined the phrase in Friedrich Wiesenschaft, God is dead. We've killed him. The result of the Bible being killed in the 18th century and God being killed in the 19th century is that in the 20th century, man was killed. There was greater destruction of man by his fellows in the 20th century than in all of recorded history put together so far as we can tell. The horrible slaughters of the First World War. What Lenin and Stalin did, what Hitler did, what Mao Zedong did, and the Tin Horn dictators like Idi Amin, Pol Pot, what the abortion mills are doing. Listen, when you take God out of the picture, what you're left with is morality is made by the strongest guy around. There was a little Austrian house painter in the 20th century who read Nietzsche, decided he was a superman, decided he had the right to impose his view of things on everybody he could. And one of his views of things is that Jews had no value. Now, if your professor or your teacher or your friend or whomever says that the eternal existent is matter, ask them why you shouldn't cheat on a test. If they say because they say so, ask them why you should listen to what they say and they not listen to what you say. I mean, if man is the result of matter plus time plus chance, if that's the explanation for man, that's the explanation for slime. Slime is matter plus time plus chance. That's the explanation for uh, chimpanzees who, who attack other monkeys and, and apes and tear them limb from limb and eat them. If we are not qualitatively different from slime, 
and monkeys, there is no objective basis for any sort of morality, and whatever moral system is imposed is going to be imposed by the strongest guy around. Now, that's what unbelievers believe. They may not want to owe up to that. They may do everything they can to avoid talking about that. But that's what they believe. So when you've established their eternal existence, you've got a great basis then for talking about their ethics. And they have no objective basis for ethics. Point that out to them. G.K. Chesterton, as a young man, flirted with unbelief, agnosticism, atheism. And he read what they wrote. He said, as I laid down the last of Colonel Ingersoll's atheistic lectures, the dreadful thought broke across my mind, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I mean, if giving us a world where there is no morality, where there's no basis for any ethics, where it's the survival of the fittest and might make right, if that's the best they can do, give me something else. I'll tell you one last thing about uh, unbelievers. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I don't know if I've ever spoken to an unbeliever who was an unbeliever because he was intellectually convinced to become an unbeliever. Who looked at all of the, the experiments, all the lab tests and said, yep, it's right there in front of me. No doubt. There is no God. This test proves it. I've never met anybody who believes that. Everybody I've met who claims to have doubts about God or is an agnostic or doesn't believe in God has arrived at that position because of moral considerations, not intellectual. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and following, where Paul says, don't live like Gentiles. How do Gentiles live? Well, they live in the futility of their mind. Their, their heads are filled with nonsense. Their heads are filled with absurdity, having their understanding darkened. That's what happens when you feel your Head with hogwash, hogwash in, hogwash out. Being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart. It's not a head problem with atheists. It's a heart problem. They don't want to be under the control of God. They don't want to acknowledge him as God. They want to be their own God and their intellectual arguments are their fig leaves to cover up their moral nakedness and divert attention from the real issue. They just want to live the way they want to live. And that may be uh, moral, that may be immoral, but they just want to do it their way. And so they're going to try to make us believe they've got scientific, empirical, intellectual reasons for doing it their way. They don't. Don't ever think they do because they don't. Well, a lot more could be said about uh, the beliefs of unbelievers. I'll stop with that. Now, tomorrow night, I'll start framing the argument for why I believe 
there is a God. It's not based on philosophical proofs. It's based on historical evidence, eyewitness testimony. I'll try to make that case starting tomorrow night. Thank you so much for your kind listening this evening. If there's anyone here who's not acknowledged Christ as Lord, but convicted of that in your heart, knowing that's what you need to do, we hope you'll decide to make the commitment to get out of the sinning business and to confess that Jesus is your Lord. Your God is whatever is most important to you. That's your God. Make Jesus and his Father your God and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If there's anyone who wants to make that response now, we invite you to come. While together we stand and while we sing.